Coming to you from Chicago, you're listening to More Than Medicine with Dr. Ngazi Azike. Dr. Azike is the president and CEO of Sinai Chicago. She's a board-certified internist and pediatrician who has dedicated her career to addressing issues of health equity and health justice. Sinai Chicago is the largest private safety net health system in the state of Illinois with a service area of over 1.5 million people living in communities of Chicago's west and southwest sides. More Than Medicine is about the fight for health equity and justice, working to not just heal wounds but truly address the root causes of hurt and distress in our communities and our nation. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ngozi Azike, and thank you for tuning into another episode of More Than Medicine. This podcast is about the fight for health equity and justice, how we need to work to not just heal wounds, but truly address the root causes of hurt and distress in our communities and our nation. Today, I am so grateful to be talking with a lifelong resident of Chicago's Little Village neighborhood, someone who has dedicated his entire career to youth development and community education. He's held many positions in nationally recognized organizations, all on a mission to better our communities. Please, please, please join me in welcoming Executive Director with Global Philanthropy at J.P. Morgan Chase, Rudy Lozano Jr. Hello. Welcome, welcome, bienvenido. I am so excited to talk to you. You are my friend, my brother. I've known you since I would have called myself young. I'm no longer that. We we go back so long. So I don't know, for some of my guests who may not have the blessing and the pleasure of knowing you, can you just start off telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started along your journey? Yes, I'd love to. I'd also just love to say thank you, Dr. Zika, for taking care of all of us during this pandemic, which we know is not over during the time that you were at the state. And I'm so excited that you're now in our neighborhood here in Little Village. So I just want to send a big thank you and muchas gracias, abrazos y besos para usted y su familia. So just had to say that first. In terms of how I started and how I got here, working in the youth development field, working in communities, a lot of it is in my blood, if you will, growing up in a family that's been very active in community been very active in starting nonprofits, not necessarily running them, but helping to get services needed in in the Lower West Side or the West Side of Chicago for a very long time. As you know, Dr. Zika, my father was an activist, slain activist who fought for Black, Brown, White unity in the city of Chicago, was also a fighter for immigrant rights and the rights of undocumented workers throughout this country. So those are the values I was raised with to always build points of unity with others, and especially those of us who've been marginalized, oppressed, and left out of the system. So those are my values. A lot of those values led me to work with young people because when I was a young person, as I mentioned, my father was assassinated when I was seven years old. And so growing up in a single family household with a father's name who was known in a lot of places, There were a lot of needs for myself and my younger siblings. And so working in that field has also helped me to understand my own challenges and to deal with them. So it's very much therapeutic as well as giving back at the same time. And just for 
those who are just starting to put this together, Rudy Lozano Sr., there's a library in Pilsen named after him. There's the Institute of Justice and Leadership Academy. And actually at Sinai, one of the floors of our parking facility is named after him as well. So really, you're coming off of an incredible legacy and those values that he represented that you embody are why you're such an important community figure as well. So as you talked about your heart for mentoring our city's youth, you actually serve on the Chicago Board of Education. And so you've mentored youth and organized community school programs. You've even taught yourself at alternative high schools. Tell me exactly why education is so important to you and what we think we can do through education. My experience in school was not great for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, dealing with trauma, single parent household, low income, first generation, college graduate. These are all challenges that many of the young people in our communities face. And I needed a different way to learn. And so I recognized that not everyone learns the same. And therefore, I felt the need to go into education in order to diversify and differentiate how education is being taught in our schools. And so for me, that was very important. I felt the need to ensure that education isn't just what's in our textbooks and that the curriculum that is taught isn't just about the Eurocentric perspectives that exist in our public education system, but that broadening to include the vast amount of immigrants that have founded this country, as well as the Native Americans who were here before all the rest of us came to this country. So it was very important for me to ensure that there was a broader and more inclusive education curriculum inserted into our public school system. And so I'm very excited to serve on the Board of Education. I'm very excited to serve with the current body, which has a very transformational goal for this system under this new administration, which I saw you interviewed the mayor in your last podcast. So there's some very exciting opportunities to transform the way we do things in the city in a way that haven't been done in a very, very long time. So I'm very excited for all those opportunities. No, that's fantastic. I mean, and as a lifelong resident of Little Village, you know what that amazing, vibrant culture brings to the conversation and brings to the whole Chicago picture. Can you expound on some of the special aspects of Little Village and what that adds to the whole Chicago scene. La Vita is on the map. And so we're very excited. We have been for quite some time. I think some of the wonderful things that our community has to offer the city of Chicago is obviously the food. People love our food. If you come to La Vita, and you walk down the street, you're going to smell all the wonderful food, not only the vendors on the street, the restaurants, the panaderias, the bakeries. So there's also just a vibrancy with the people who live here. It's a very working class community, lots of families. I believe we have the youngest population and most dense population in the city of Chicago as well, or if not, we're probably very close to that. So we have a very young population. It's very family-oriented community. And so neighbors look after one another. We have block clubs that if you come here in the summer, you may not be able to come down a certain street because it's blocked off for a block club party. And then during the school hours in the morning and the afternoon, you'll just see hundreds, if not thousands of families walking their children to and from school 
the 26th Street corridor is filled with mom and pop shops that have products from Mexico, right? And so it feels very much like you're in Mexico. And so there's so much vibrancy. And then the last thing I'll just mention is the culture of activism, the culture of representing who we are in the city of Chicago, whether that be in elected political positions or appointed positions, you throw a rock and you'll hit somebody from La Vita somewhere in our state, county, federal institutions who are very proud of where they come from and proud of their background. Now, you just reminded me that we are going to be overdue to break bread in La Vita very, very soon. So we're going to get that on the calendar right after we finish talking. But it is a beautiful community. And even with all of this rich culture and this beautiful family network, we do see significant disparities and we see issues with lack of access. How do you think organizations and healthcare institutions need to work together to address these disparities and better foster equity and access for communities like La Vijita and others? The access is important. I think eliminating barriers, whether it be language barriers, transportation barriers, educational barriers, and informing folks in our communities on the importance of seeking health services. I know those of us that grew up without health insurance, going to the doctor, going to the hospital is always an emergency. And so it's scary, right? So preventative healthcare is critical for our communities. And we didn't always have access to that. And some folks still have no access to that. And so visiting hospitals is usually an emergency as opposed to a preventative visit. So I think eliminating these barriers, making it comfortable so that adults who have small children are their daycare centers or places where children can be watched while you go to an appointment, are appointments available on weekends and after work hours. I think these are all barriers that many of the folks in our communities and similar communities are challenged with. I can't go to work and then come to an appointment and miss work because it's so critical for me to have my paycheck and to put food on the table. So there are a lot of barriers. I think the things that need to happen is for institutions like Mount Sinai and others is to recognize these barriers, extend hours where possible, have mobile units, go to where people are at in their schools, whether it's local schools, during the summers when children are off. I think there are a lot of solutions that already exist that I'm sure you're very aware of, Dr. Zika, that you have yourself championed throughout your career. And I think we need to continue to encourage other institutions to do the same and meet people where they're at and understand the barriers that prevent them from having access to quality health care. I think everything you said is so spot on. And, you know, we try so hard that you can always do better, but making sure that we have linguistically appropriate care, making sure that we have enough people that speak Spanish at every death front, at every shift of the day, that's very critical. We go out of our way to make sure that we are hiring from the community. Yeah, I think at least 26, 27% of all of the people that work at Sinai are from the community. And so really trying to keep promoting that. And we even have our initiatives around the physician DEI work to make sure that the residents and the physicians that we hire, that they too represent the communities that we serve. And so we're continually striving to increase those numbers and also think about how to increase the pool. Because some of the issue is that the pool is not 
there for some of the issues that you mentioned and that you're actively working on. So let's talk about all the great positions that you have had, many positions in like nationally recognized organizations, the Association House of Chicago, Instituto del Progreso Latino, Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, and LASE. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the great successes and wins that you have accomplished through these great organizations advancing the goals that your father represented, that you've embodied in yourself? Yes, I have spent a majority of my working career in nonprofit organizations throughout the city. The Association House of Chicago, which is located in Humboldt Park, was one of my first nonprofit opportunities. And I got to mentor high school students at an alternative high school. Uh, I also got to learn about Humble Park and its history, its rich history of working together to support other nonprofits. And I think in many of that influenced how I worked in then Instituto de Progreso Latino and Pilsen and Lasse Chicago and La Vita, which at the time was called Little Village Community Development Corporation, which is just shows my length on this planet, that the name has changed of that organization. And so the work during this time was really about building foundation and building critical services for people in our communities. And so when you look at these organizations now, they're obviously Association House was a settlement house. And so looking at how the history they supported immigrant families. And we find ourselves in very similar times today where you have recent arrivals and uh, asylum seekers coming to Chicago looking for services and opportunities for their families. And so I think the lessons learned there are that we continue to need these services in our communities. We continue to be a city that's a port of entry for immigrants, and in particular on the West Side, whether it be Humble Park, Little Village, or even North Lawndale, we continue to need to support these families that are coming. They are keeping the population high in our city. They help to bring critical services to our community. And then they pay tax dollars that go to our services as well. So the example I would say in this moment is we need to continue to serve those in need. We need to continue to support each other as nonprofit organizations and collaborate to eliminate the barriers that make life difficult for those that are not making the 1% income in this country. I want to segue because, you know, from those community organizations, now you're with a big corporate organization, but really thinking about how your current role with philanthropy can actually align with the mission of serving those who need support and still have this direct ability to give back. At Sinai, we rely heavily on our donors and we're always finding ways to raise additional dollars because the work that we do, we don't get the reimbursement to cover the work that we do. But on our mission, we're going to continue serving and then have to go back and find the dollars to support the work. So tell me about your current role with philanthropy and how that aligns with all the important work that needs to be done. I completely agree. The philanthropy space is very important to providing the dollars and bringing the capital to the nonprofit organizations, to institutions like yourself, like Mount Sinai, that provide critical services to low-income, moderate-income communities. So the role in philanthropy, we still have a long way to go 
in terms of having a diverse leadership, in terms of having funding dollars that are serving, in particular, Black and brown communities. I think having folks who come from our communities in those positions is critical to understanding how the dollars can be maximized in our community, how we need to advocate for even more funding to be allocated to our communities. And so coming to J.P. Morgan Chase's foundation was in many ways serendipitous as I was looking to do something different personally. And this program called the Fellowship Initiative to serve young men of color in their high school years appeared and I was offered the opportunity to build it from scratch. And so the opportunity to serve young people of color to help them get to and through college was how I came to philanthropy. And then when I got there, I was exposed to understanding how important and critical philanthropy's role is in supporting our communities and how we need to continue to advocate for those who have generational wealth and who have institutional wealth and how they can redistribute those funds to our community. And so there's been a lot of lessons learned. I think being there has opened my eyes to how much more we need diverse leadership in philanthropy spaces so that we can continue to bring these dollars back to our communities. And if I can talk about diverse leadership, I know you got your feet wet with politics. I think your campaign manager was Chewy Garcia. Do you think there's a, another opportunity for that? I think it's in your blood leadership and advocacy on that front. What do you think? I'm flattered by the question. Yes, I did run for office a couple of times and it was a wonderful opportunity. I don't know. I leave the door open. I think there's a younger generation with a lot more, like, not going to hold back. Let's put it that way. They're not going to hold back on what's needed. And I'm very excited about how they approach the status quo and the antiquated policies that exist. I also think it's time for women of color to lead. And so being a man of color, I think it's my obligation to step back and support women of color in roles that they have not historically held. And so I see my role in this moment as being very supportive of those who want to run for office, of doing whatever I can to elect leadership, to support elected leadership that is progressive and represents the values of our community. So the door is always open. I do think it is a young person's role in many ways, and I'm here to support. I love that answer. Trust me, I know you well, and you definitely speak truth to power. You are as passionate as anyone could ever be. So if you ever rethink that, I'm in your corner. If you'll join the Um, slate, I'm I'm in. (laughs) Whatever you need, bro. (laughs) There's a question that I was asked last week, and I'm curious what you would say. If you were given $100 million for our city... What would you do with it? Oh, man, I didn't see this one coming. A hundred million dollars sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) When you put it to a city, I think we'd have to be really strategic and where that goes. You know, there's so many needs in the city of Chicago. Just off the top of my head, I would lean into our young people and our elders, right? I think both require a lot of support. We don't often invest in our seniors and we invest in our young people at certain ages and then we sort of move on and so i think 
those will be the two populations that I think could really benefit from additional resources in our city. I always believe in education and leadership development as a route to liberation and to empowerment. And so I would love to see $100 million go into leadership development, into youth development, into providing opportunities for our seniors to have a quality of life towards the end of their life where they can build community, be with one another, not have to worry about who's watching out for them in their later years. Those are the two populations that I think about when you hit me with that question. No, that's profound. I know thinking about some of the work that we do on the youth side, really trying to get youth at those very foundational years, maybe before they have a chance to go down a wrong path, but to try to secure that path so that they are going in the right direction from the start. And then we know how critical our seniors are to our community. You know, they're the bedrock, they're the anchor. And so we need to treat them with respect and dignity. We need to do the things so that they can have those later years be as fruitful as possible because they serve such a critical role, often raising some of the younger generation. So I love how you answered that question. So as you think about where we're moving in this city, we know the right answers. We know the paths. We know it's about supporting youth. We know it's about economic empowerment. So what are the actual barriers to achieving the equity and justice that your father fought for that we still seek today? What are those barriers? Why can't we get there? I wish I had the complete answer, Dr. Ezekiel. I would say that I think a lot of the challenges we face today stem back hundreds of years and the lack of generational wealth, as I mentioned earlier, that exists in our communities, the wealth that was stolen from many of our communities, and it's done through ways that were often legal, right? Legal in this country to take people's homes away from them, to give subprime loans that they knew they couldn't pay back. There are many ways that there are policies that are still on the books and that we're still feeling the impact of in our communities. The hypersegregation that exists in Chicago is not a coincidence, right? We know that there were denial of homes being able to be purchased in certain communities, and that was done intentionally in this city in particular. And so we are still feeling the effects of those policies that have existed since the founding of cities like Chicago. And so we need reparations in our country. We need to undo the harm that was done with real resources. I know some people say you can't solve everything with money. I agree. It's a good start, though, and we can invest in communities like the southwest side of Chicago, where they've been disinvested and even resources taken away throughout the existence of of our communities. And so there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of barriers in place, both at the community level and then also at the policy level. And I think we need to be able to work on both of those at the same time. It's not one or the other. And then we also need to get to healing our communities, which policies will not do. That is work that needs to be done on an individual and community basis. I'm a huge proponent in this moment of healing-centered engagement. I know it's a new kind of buzz word and topic. I think there are certain things that policies will not cure that we have to do ourselves, and we need to be provided the resources to heal ourselves with one another. I thank you for raising all of those issues. Like when we think about 
the aftermath of COVID and you feel like there's just been a lot of trauma going through that really globally. But if you rewind, you know, I say BC before COVID, the communities that Sinai serve, the community that you call home, we have experienced ongoing trauma, just ongoing. And that has to be addressed. That affects how we show up every day. And untreated trauma doesn't always end well. And so really thinking about not just the more recent traumas that we have all faced together, but the ongoing trauma. Poverty causes trauma. Prevalent community violence is a trauma. And so we have to, through the healing-centered engagement or whether it's individual help, we do need that trauma-informed lens to continue to to work and, and heal. I know at Sinai we have pediatric behavioral health services and adolescent as well as adults and inpatient services, there's a lot that's needed. And so that's a really important thing that I appreciate that you lifted up. I have to circle back and give you an opportunity to lead me out with something super hopeful. What makes you hopeful? What makes you look towards the future and say, yes, the future is bright. Take me home with something good. I'm very hopeful. As you know, I am very optimistic. The cup is always half full. We have a generation, several generations coming behind us that are enthusiastic, energetic. They are unapologetic about their approach to the needs of this planet, whether it be climate change and global warming, whether it be seeing the reproductive rights of women restored in this country, whether it's ensuring that corruption is no longer rampant in our governments. I think there are a lot of positive things coming with the next generation. You have young people in your family, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with how they ask for things nowadays and how they are demanding things nowadays. And so they're empowered and they are ready to make change. And in many ways, they're waiting for us to get out of the way so they can do that. And so I am very optimistic about our younger generation's will to challenge status quo and policies that are outdated so that we can have real humanity and healing-centered approaches to all of our institutions. So I'm excited about them in particular, and I'm also excited about, you know, change is constant. And so it's going to happen one way or another. It's just a matter of how long we're going to stand in the way of change. Thank you. I can count on you to keep it high. No, I mean, my four at home, your, you know, Yarina and Medea, we're counting on them. We are knowing that they are going to carry on the good work that we've started. We stand on the shoulders of our forefathers and they will be standing on ours. And so we look forward to what they're going to do and expect them to carry the ball further than we were able to get it. But there's a lot of work to be done and them seeing the example of Leaders like you carrying the torch, I think that will be a light unto their feet and a a lamp for their path. So I think the future is bright. I agree with you. And I'm excited for what the next generation is going to do. So thank you for that. And just thank you for joining me and for your long career and tireless work in advocating for true equity. Thank you for just embodying what your father stood for. We need black and brown and white unity. 
I thank you for all that you're doing in the community and helping everyone to achieve their dreams and achieve their goals. I'm looking forward to great work from you and your organizations. And again, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been an honor. The love is mutual, Dr. Zekin. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you will do. And I send my love to you and your family. Thank you for listening to More Than Medicine with Dr. Ngazi Azike. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Sinai Chicago's YouTube channel, as well as follow at Sinai Chicago on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for information on upcoming podcasts. Until next time.